Coney Convos, the podcast, episode five, chatting with Terry Collins. You look back at your all your time and say, what a great ride it was and, you know, what all the experiences you had. And, you know, today we all laugh about it. And John Grice. People say, I know you from somewhere. I say, well, if you stay up late enough and you watch enough crap on TV, you might find me there. On this episode of the podcast, we chat with TC, Terry Collins, the special assistant to the general manager of the New York Mets, and John Grice, a.k.a. Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. With Tom Savino, Keith Rat here with you at MCU Park. We're just hanging out here on Coney Island, getting ready for another podcast, and you've got a great chance to talk to Terry Collins. He's beloved by Mets fans. How was your conversation? It was fun, and I wanted to make sure we talked about nothing that had to do with managing, really, because he's here on Coney Island, and he's got a lot of minor league stories to tell. Of course, he can chat for hours about the Mets and his time as a manager. Nobody has managed more New York Mets baseball games than Terry Collins has, and so we know all of that stuff. And I wanted to talk about his minor league career and what it's like seeing guys he saw play, Edgardo Alfonso and Andy Chavez, become coaches themselves. A really good conversation talking about some things with a guy that everybody knows in Metsland, but talking about things that he doesn't often talk about. All right, here it is, TC and uh, DS. Sitting down with Terry Collins here in Edgardo Alfonso's office. Terry, it is it's so fun to have you here, but what brings you out to Coney Island? Well, part of my job is to go through our minor league system and you know, just kind of watch, not necessarily to really grade out the players. That's not my job. I, my job's really to make sure that, you know, they're being taught the right things. Um, you know, if there's, I guess, you look in our organization, if and especially in our modern-day game today, if there's somebody who's familiar with what it takes to be a big league player, I'm the guy. So they've turned to me to ask me to go and, and take a look at some people and, you know, kind of give, give my judgment on them. So your official title now is Special Assistant to the General Manager. What does that mean? Good question. Uh, you know, when I when I stepped down as the manager of the Mets, Sandy and Fred, Sandy Alderson and Fred Wilpon asked me to take this job. And basically what I just told you was about, and that is to go through the system, um, not necessarily to coach, but to really work with the coaches to make sure things are getting done throughout the system to uh you know, make sure our players are getting better in the right way. And, you know, the game has changed so much in, in recent years that, you know, there's some ways, to, there's some things that play in the big leagues today that didn't play years ago. What did you see yesterday? Maybe not the greatest day for the Cyclones, but what did you see from the guys in 14 well, innings? you know, right now, you know, they're all college players. And, I, you know, I used to be the farm director of the Dodgers years ago. So, and I had a theory when I, when I first took over from my playing days, and that was, look, all these guys who were just signed, leave them alone. They were signed for. They were drafted for a reason. They were signed for a reason. And the one thing you can't do is get get too excited to think you got to change guys right out of the gate. You got to let them play. You got to let them have a feel for it. And a lot of good good players they make they make adjustments on their own. So I'm here to just to watch these guys to say, hey, look, you know, we got to try to judge the uh, the skill set that they have and to see if it might play someplace. I know you never managed Edgardo Alfonso or Andy Chavez directly, but guys that you obviously saw play for their entire careers. What's it like for you now seeing Fonzie three years into his managing time with the Cyclones and Andy in his first coaching job? Well, especially starting with Fonzie, one of the things you don't see today are guys who were great major league players coming back and managing in the minor leagues. There's no money in it, so you're not doing it for that reason. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of work. I know a lot of major league players who, you know, made a lot of money in their time. They come back and they're they're a hitting coach, 
and all of a sudden they didn't realize how much work goes into it or a pitching coach and how much work goes into it and they don't like it because there's there's time that you know that they're hey they show up at the ballpark as players and they get themselves ready well in the minor leagues and the big leagues coaching starts a lot earlier than just getting to the ballpark so to see a guy like Fonzie give something back to the organization to the game that he loves is special I saw Fonz in Japan and uh, you know near the end of his career and, and to have those kind of guys it's invaluable because you know there's a certain aura that those former major league players have that these players have to understand what it takes and what adjustments have to be made along the way. Have you gotten a chance to pass along any advice from your managing career? And I know you had three really big stops in the bigs. Well, it's a little different in managing the big leagues than it is in the New York Penn League, I can <laughs> tell you that. So, you know, I, I talked to Fonz yesterday about, you know, if he's having fun, because mostly that's what you got to do. You got to enjoy, you got to enjoy the job. Um, it's hard, and the higher you go, the harder it gets. So if it's still fun, if he still has fun working with the guys, because that's what it's all about at this level, and, you know, getting them ready, getting them to understand, look, there's adjustments that have to be made. Pro ball is a different game than it is when, when they were in amateur ball. A lot of guys, especially in today's game, you know, they didn't play every day. And in pro ball, you play every day. I, I was very fortunate when I grew up. I mean, my senior year in college, uh, I played every single day. I had, was on different leagues, not just in college, but even in the summer line, summertime to try to get myself ready. And guys today don't do that. And, and so it's a whole different game. And we see it a lot of times with the fatigue just being out here every single day uh, can fatigue these guys by the end of the season. Now, this is not your first time in the New York Penn League. Got to go back a little ways to find your first time. 1971, your first year as a minor league baseball player in what ended up being a decade-long baseball career, as a player at least. You're drafted by the Pirates, and they send you to the Niagara Falls Pirates in the New York Penn League. What do you remember about that debut season? Well, again, it was just like everybody else. I was all very, very excited to get my opportunity to be a professional. And the one thing I do remember about 1971, I played every inning of every game. I got down to the last day of the season, and our manager came to me, and he said, look, you've played every inning. You want the day off? And I said, I've come this far. I might as well finish it out. So uh, it was a great experience. Um, you know, we had some pretty good players on that team. But again, it was the, the fact that you had to, you know, you were doing the thing that you grew up wanting to do. And so the game never changed. And you just went out every day. And, again, it's a whole different game than it was today. But, uh, you know, I, I love that opportunity. I love Niagara Falls. I still go back there today. Uh, I have some great friends in Buffalo. I managed in Buffalo for a while on the way up. So it's a great part of the country, which I, I, I frequent. So, But this is where you get started. And you know what? If you use this the right way, it, it's, uh, it's a great learning experience. Now you told me that the home stadium you guys had in 1971 still stands today, right? Yeah, Hyde Park in New York, Niagara Falls it still stands today. You know, it's a former football stadium that they've transformed into a baseball stadium, so you cannot see the other dugout because it's on the same level as you are. So it's a little different. You have home plate separates the two dugouts, but you can't see in the other dugout at all. So it was a you know, it was a real little bitty clubhouse, but you didn't care it was the minor leagues and you know you, you adjusted to what came up came about but you know you had to get used to the bus rides for the first time and sleeping you know years ago uh, those open the racks in the top they were open and I was small enough I could sleep in those things so those long trips I was about the only guy who could get some sleep do you have any horror stories from the road in 1971 no nah, that's too far back not really <laughs> I, I got some horror stories probably when I was in double a going crossing the borders from because there were the league in the eastern league Canada had three teams so I used to have to go across the border, uh, you know, once in a while, and you know, in the middle of the night at two in the morning, the guards would make you empty the bus so they could search all your equipment. So, uh, you know, again, things are a little different today. 
did you remember your passport every time going across the border? Because I'm assuming that's a huge thing too. No, not anymore. Years ago, you don't. You, the Latin players needed a visa, and that was it. The American players, you just came and went. But you know, it was harder actually getting back in the United States than it was going into Canada back then. We used to, and that was one night on a bus ride back. One of our star players who became one of the great pitchers in baseball, you know, was sleeping in the guard flashed a light in his face and he reached his hand up and knocked the flashlight out and the guy made us empty all of our bags out of the bus because he was mad at us so and that was coming back into the United States so you know it's just one of those again you look back at your all your time and say what a great ride it was and you know what all the experiences you had and you know today we all laugh about it. Now I know that you played 10 years as a minor league shortstop but I found an article in which you said when you got drafted by the Pirates you wrote a letter to your mom saying that if I don't make the bigs in three years, that's it, I'm giving up. But you played for a decade. What made you stick it out? Well, I fell in love with the game. Um, You know, when I went to my first spring training, I met guys who were 29, 30 years old, um, still playing in the minor leagues, had no major league time. And I said, you know, I had a college education. I had graduated from college, and I was actually going back to work on my master's program the next fall. And and I just said, well, I'm not going to be stuck in the minor leagues for 10 years, and 50 years later, I'm still doing it. So... Uh, I fell in love with the game. I fell in love with the players, the guys, you know, your teammates, uh, and just became part of who I was. And and I just, you know, I, I looked through the past. I, you know, I lost a lot of things along the way. I didn't, you we didn't make any money back then. You know, you play for, you get paid for four months or five months. And, you know, back then, if you made $1,000 a month, it was a fortune. Uh, I signed, I made $500 and made the all-star team, was the MVP of our team, and I got a $50 raise. So, you know, you, but you, that wasn't the point. The point was you had your opportunity to try to b- make it to the big leagues, and it was a well worth it. 23 years after you get drafted is your first year as the manager of the Houston Astros. What was that debut in the big leagues like? Well, I will tell you, when I walked out on first baseline in Houston on opening night, I looked around the stadium, and, and, I, and my mother had passed away, and I looked up, I, and I, again, I said it was all worth it. All the tribulations that came along the way, the heartaches, the you know being poor, doing all the things you could do so you could come back the next next year to play was well worth it when you're on that major league play that major league field for the first time. What is the advice you can pass on to the guys in the clubhouse who are a lot of them in their first year as a pro, just like you were back in 1971, trying to get to that ultimate dream of making the bigs? Well, for me, you got to listen and you got to adjust. The game is going to be different. Um, you can't ever get too high when you're four for four, and you can't get too down when you're 0 for five. This is a, a daily grind, and you've got to learn how to get through it. You know, I used to tell players, even in the big leagues, you know, you start the season out in, in early April, and you, I said, guys, you got to put blinders on. You got to be able to block out all the outside interference and realize we've got to dedicate ourselves for six months to the success of the ball team. And these guys right now at this level, hey, look, what do I need to do to get better? And don't let anything stand in your way because I'm, I'm a perfect example. You know, I was not a great player. Um, I got an opportunity because I was a, a pretty good player. But as I went along the way, I saw a lot of guys were better than me. So I had to play harder than they did. And, and so there's a lot of ways to, to, you know, achieve your ultimate goal. And uh, if you're willing to put the time in and the effort in, it's there for you. Terry Collins, the special assistant to the GM, hanging out with us here in Brooklyn. Terry, thanks so much for a couple of minutes. My pleasure. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Terry Collins. I know that even our hitting coach, Delwyn Young, is a big fan of Terry Collins. And, Dom, it was important for you to try to dive into the minor leagues here because fans see the Terry Collins and the pinstripes going nuts for the Mets, but it takes a long time and you meet a lot of people before you get from point A to point B. Yeah, and I really wanted to talk about his minor league career, too. You heard he started his career in the New York Penn League a couple decades ago, sure, but it's fun to talk about those things and 
figure out the makings of Terry Collins, who would go on decades later to be the great manager the Mets got to have for seven years. All right, perfect Coney Island transition. We go from baseball to Uncle Rico, John Grice, who is here for our 2000s night, celebrating Napoleon Dynamite. He had a bobblehead. He had everything. A very versatile actor, director, Mr. Hollywood, as far as his talents are concerned. Hope you enjoy this chat with John Grice. Chatting with John Grice, a.k.a. Uncle Rico, as we celebrate 2000s night here at MCU Park in Coney Island, USA. It's good to see you. You have been on TVs and movie theaters, and you've been writing shows. You've been in so many different places for a lot of people that may not even know. Do you do it all? I listen. You know, I'm a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. I do it all, but not always well. You know, some days it's it works out better than other days. You should have seen me taking BP. I hit one almost to the fence. You were you were turning some heads, certainly. You had a lot of good baseball brass watching you, too. I know you're a big baseball fan. You had Edgardo Alfonso watching you. had Mets great. Delwin Young, who played yeah. for your Dodgers. Were you a little nervous in there? Well, no, because I'm, I'm, kind, of, I'm kind of too stupid to be nervous. <laughs> <laughs> when was the last time you had taken a couple swings? Well, I play in a hardball league back in Los Angeles, so I, I, I played on, on Sunday. You played last Sunday. Yeah. How'd you do? I went, I went one for three with a double, two RBIs, and a walk, and one stolen base. How's that? I'll okay. take it. Yeah. What, what was your baseball life growing up? Were you a kid playing it? What, no. What happened? I never played. Uh, I mean, I, you know, because my family moved to New York City, and there were, a lot of people weren't playing baseball in New York. I mean, you know, it was more football. Everything was football. We loved football. And then when, when I was like 18, 17 years old, I, a bunch of my friends were really into baseball, and they were like, hey, let's, uh, we don't have money to go to the gym come and work out with us so we would go to this one field and i swear we'd meet there every day and just shag and hit and some of these guys got drafted so i was i was playing with the right people and they were you know they hey you got a pretty good arm i mean geez you could play you know and i i guess i was always a little bit athletic so and then i walked on at santa monica city college before they in the winter league before they um got rid of their team they, they don't have a team there anymore but this was way back in in 82 <laughs> Or whatever, and I, um, and I, and I, they kept me around for the winter, so it was a lot of fun. And then I finally had to quit and get a job, like a regular job. But you're a, still a Dodger fan to this day. I mean, well, today you're a Brooklyn Cyclones and a Mets fan, yeah. but no, <laughs> but I'm, regular. I'm 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 truly a baseball fan. I really, I mean, I love the Brewers. I love the I love I love the National League. I'm a National League fan. I'm much more. I, I don't really watch American League ball that much. I'm always watching National League ball. I just think it's just something about it's just more exciting to me. I don't know what it is. Well, Maybe it's the DH. Yeah, <laughs> uh, certainly NL country here in the, uh, the Mets organization for sure. But your arm turned out to be Uncle Rico in throwing a football over to the mountains. Did they cast you in that kind of role because of your athletic background? What was they the story no, behind no, that? No, you know what happened was, it's funny, I, I'd actually... I was on a show for four years called The Pretender, and I quit acting right after that show because I wanted to write. I want there was things I wanted to do. I was writing a, a screenplay, and I was working really hard. And I called my agent. And I said, "Look, I don't know if I'm packing it up for good, but I'm done for now. I gotta, I gotta just take some time, like a year, and write this." So while I was off, this guy named Jory Whites called me, and he was casting this film called The Big Empty with John Favreau, Kelsey Grammer, Daryl Hannah, and a, and an actor had dropped out. 
And he's like, look, I've been trying to find you. Your agent doesn't even know where you are. What are you doing? Would you come and do this movie? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. You know, you're going to pay me? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to give you some money. So I went up and shot this movie and then went back to work. Turns out that Jory then got the next job he got was Napoleon Dynamite. And they were trying to cast Uncle Rico, and apparently they went out to a few bigger names. <laughs> and uh, they all said no. They didn't even read the script. And then um, turns out while they were casting, they were using an office where they were cutting the movie The Big Empty. And Jory Weitz just said, I think you should look at this guy from The Big Empty for Uncle Rico. And they watched my scenes, and then they just said, yeah, we're going to offer it to him. We want, we want to go for him. And so they offered it to me, and my representation were like, I don't know who these people are. We don't even think you should bother. They're not paying anything. It's whatever. And I was like, I don't care. Let me read the script. I read the script, page 15, laughing out loud, and then I said, yeah, I'm, I'm in. You tell them I'll drive myself there. Well, it is humor that immediately when the movie comes out, you either love it or you hate it. You yeah. know it's going to be a cult classic. So did it hit home with your humor? You know, it's weird. I mean, there are some days that you, you know, you might read a screenplay and go, you might be in a bad mood. You might have had a fight with your girlfriend or your parents or whatever. And you're, you're like, I can, ah, you know, but it just so happened. This was a beautiful day. The screenplay came. Everything was going really well. And I read it and I was just laughing hysterically. And I was like, how could anybody turn this part down? I just love this character and I love the sentiment in the screenplay I, I just got it and I was lucky I was lucky that I just got it right off you know and and it was a really life changing uh, choice well you mentioned the mindset and I mean at the time as you said you were kind of eh with acting you wanted to do some writing so it it's kind of funny because Napoleon Dynamite is just kind of an oddball movie. I yeah. mean, it, were you nervous? Were you, at this point, fed up? Where were you mentally? I, it's interesting. That's a really good question. I think that, I think whenever an actor, if they're worth their salt, gets a role, they're like a dog wearing a bone. They're trying to figure out where to put it, what to do with it. Yeah. I mean, I think all the way in, the first scene I shot was the scene in the diner with Kip, you know, and, uh, you know, looking at my arms and all that you know like flexing my biceps I didn't plan to do that that just happened in the moment I just like I, I was still up until the minute we started rolling thinking okay so what is the key to this guy what is the key to him and of course there was like a moment I took a dip of some onion like an onion ring and I took a dip and it dropped on my arm right in that moment and I looked down and the first thing I thought was well this character, I mean, not, I didn't think of it like that. I thought, did anybody see that as Uncle Rico? Like, did anybody see me make a fool of myself? And he wipes it off. And so at that moment, I became more aware of myself as the character. So, you know, because that's what he is. He's very self-aware. He's very concerned about how people see him. And that, that was like a moment that happened literally right then. But it wouldn't have happened without all the preparation, you know. And then I started checking my guns and, you know. So we can we can thank some onion dip for yeah, the, who Uncle Rico dip, turned onion into. Onion dip and a little preparation. And, you know, there you go. That girl almost just got hit in the face with a ball. We are here at MCU Park getting ready for the Cyclones and the Tri-City Valley Cats, but there's a celebrity softball game coming up. It has been a, a chaotic day, so many moving pieces. There's been so many moving pieces in your career. I am a huge Seinfeld fan. You uh, played Rusty, strapped yeah. you to a rickshaw. What yeah. was that experience like? It was amazing. You know, that was the, the strangest thing because the first one was the toupee when George, George, you know, as they called it, your hair hat. 
you know, he, he decided to wear a toupee and then they threw it out the window and Rusty picks it up and puts it on his head. And they and that's also uh, Kramer was giving Rusty the Tupperware because he was like it has the patented burp. No, it was amazing. And at that at that time when that came, I just was about to start shooting Get Shorty. So I felt like, wow, everything is just, I'm on Seinfeld and I'm going to shoot a movie with, you know, Danny DeVito and John Travolta and all these, you know, it was like, it was amazing, magical time. And uh, then they brought Rusty back later, but he was a little off when he was back later. It was like he'd been homeless for a little too long. <laughs> he, he was much more cognizant of what he was doing in the first one. The next one, he was a little bit loopy. He'd like, just like, he spun too many wheels, I think. <laughs> Here with John Grice at MCU Park. Your career, I'm just fascinated by the people who are very versatile in what they're able to do, writing, directing, acting. Where do you feel that John Grice really comes out? What, what, what aspect of the movie-making world you know, do you really feel your talents kind of come out the most? And that's a, I don't know. You know that's We're a hard still, one. Life I, is a journey. We're still figuring that yeah, out, I'm sure. Of course. I don't even know. I mean, I, like I say, people say, I know you from somewhere. I say, well, if you stay up late enough and you watch enough crap on TV, you might find me there. I, you know, I don't know. I like a challenge. If, if, if you, you know, after I did Uncle Rico, I got offered all kinds of roles. And they were like, yeah, he's kind of like Uncle Rico. And I'm like, no. Uh, that's done. Yeah. Not going to do that again. Unless they wanted to do a sequel, which we'll talk about later. I, at this point, there isn't one planned, but we've, we've talked about it. I've talked to those guys about that. And we believe now, well, I guess I'm in it. But it, it in real time, 15 years later, would be really appropriate because life, you know, it's not as optimistic when, you know, you're 15 years after high school, really, for Napoleon and those guys, you know. Uh, and it could be really kind of funny and interesting, a little darker maybe. And Jared Hess, the writer, director of Napoleon Dynamite with his wife, Jerusha, they respond to that idea like, well, that's kind of cool. So, you know, there's a possibility that we might we might be able to do something. <clears throat> we'll see. In the meantime, I'm doing this show on Adult Swim. We're in, we just shot, finished shooting our third season called Dream Corp LLC. And it's produced by Stephen Merchant, you know, the tall British guy who came up with the... Uh, the Office with the Ricky Gervais and John Krasinski is one of our executive producers. Great cast, great, amazing, amazing shows. Really fun, and you know. And now I'm doing the movie Unicorn, coming out on on Netflix. Yes, it's it's licensed. <coughs> excuse me, through Net <coughs> Netflix, and it's it's a kids' film, but it's about a unicorn. So it's it's uh, it's a beautiful, beautifully written script. Really sweet. These guys are here in the minor leagues where they're going to remember how crappy the bus rides are and the food was terrible and there was where are we now kind of thing. Is there a role or a place in the beginning of your career or a commercial that you shot or anything that you said, where am I here? What am I doing? Oh, God. Wait, what, what day is it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, I, I don't know. I mean, before I did Real Genius, which was back in 85, you know, I mean, I was, I was painting houses and pulling cable for electrical work and digging ditches for plumbing and doing framing. You know, I was, I was doing whatever I could to keep it going. So, and there were some independent films that are now kind of achieved an oddly cultish status. Like, uh, there's a film called Joysticks that I did back in like '81 or '82 that I hated. That I was like, I wanted to. 
you know, like I thought it was career suicide as a kid, and now I've got people co- constantly calling me saying, "Hey, we're showing this at our theater in you know Austin. Come down. We want you to, you know, we want you to represent." I'm like, "Ooh, God, I wanted to kill myself after that. <laughs> How did that happen?" You know, but but you know, yeah. There's there was there's a lot of rough. You go through rough periods, you know. I mean, I've done a lot of different things. I kind of quit again also in the late 80s, and I was directing music videos, you know, and shooting music videos for Priority Records. I was doing rap videos. Really? Back in the day. Is there a video that we would know, that we would yeah. have no idea you were behind the, uh, well, the, the director's chair? I mean, I, I, they didn't quite get as big. The artists that I did w- was a group called Low Profile. I did three videos for them, and there's one called Pay Your Dues, which was kind of an MTV rotational video which was a full-on gangster rap video but i you know i used to shoot a lot of stuff and i'd get hired to shoot people's videos you know shooting on film i told i told you everybody out there listening to the coney combos podcast the man's versatile i mean that's quite a resume just top to bottom like master of none dude (laughs) master of none you know you just get through life you just make the do it the best you can and if somebody responds to it you know uh, you just can't take yourself too seriously. You just can't. It's got to understand it's just kind of a crazy journey, and you make the best of it. You know? It's a perfect ending point. Yeah. John, thank you so much. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hope you enjoyed Coney Combos, the podcast, Episode 5. You can catch it on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and now on Spotify. <laughs>